morning. Ooh, that was a little loud. <laughs> How's everyone doing this morning? Good, good. Hey, if you have a Bible, which I always encourage you to bring, or if you are one of those you prefer to, to read and follow along on your phone, that's perfectly all right. I want to go ahead and encourage you, be turning this morning to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is this tiny little book. It's about four chapters long in the, the Old Testament. It's a book that we oftentimes think is insignificant, but it has a powerful message. But while you turn there and you're pulling out your Bible and you're flipping to that page, let me go ahead and ask you a question. Have you ever been in a situation that was just broken? It was messed up. Maybe because you've done something or maybe it's just because we live in a broken world, but you find yourself in a really bad situation. And then all of a sudden you have that one person who comes into your life. That one person who seems like they were divinely put in place by God to bring goodness back into that space. Someone you can vent to. Someone who's there in your corner fighting on your behalf. Someone, maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a best friend. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a mentor. Maybe it's just some random dude on the street and you have this thought of, wow, God has put this person in my life to help me get through what I am facing right now. Have you ever been there? All of us have, and I'm sure all of us will. And it's this wonderful showing of how sometimes God works in our lives and the situations that are going on, how how God is moving his divine plan of restoration into the world as he brings into our lives sometimes people that just need to be there. People who are like, they are the person who needs to be in your life at that moment in time. Well, we see this all throughout the Bible. And especially in the story of the book, of Ruth. So as you turn there, let me go ahead and give you some background information what's going on. You see, the story that we've been looking at, as we're looking at how the whole Bible is telling one big story, piecing everything together, we've seen this God who wants to fix the world, who wants to bring his restoration, his purpose, his glory back in the world, to build a relationship back with us. And he's promised that he's going to do it through this family line of this guy named Abraham. Abraham's descendants are known as the Israelites and they have this promise to enter into this promised land and that when they get there, they are going to be a blessing upon the world that God is going to fix the world through them. But then we saw last week in the book of Judges that once God's people got into the promised land, got what they wanted from God, then, well, things fell apart, right? The book of Judges is this constant story where you're looking at these people and you're like, guys, you should be better than this. You're supposed to be the hope of the world, and you're screwing it up. The whole book of Judges is just this chaotic mess, and you end the book of Judges scratching your head thinking, well, these people are supposed to be the heroes. They're supposed to be the saviors, and now they need a savior. How is God going to come in and fix his people when they're like this? Well, that's where the book of Ruth picks up. See, the book of Ruth is the beginning of God fixing his people. And we get to see a God who is at work even when his people are rebellious, even when his people take one step forward with him and then two steps back. What God is doing to further his plan. It's a beautiful story. But it picks up in this setting of chaos, in this setting where the own government of the Israelites that was supposed to be about generosity and justice has turned towards corruption and greed. It's in this setting that the book of Ruth takes place. And we know that from the very first words of the book of Ruth, because the book of Ruth opens up in chapter one. 
And it says, in the days when the judges ruled. So right off the bat, we're, we're knowing, okay, this story is going to take place in a time of chaos. In a time of fear. In a time when everyone's looking around wondering, what is going on? This story is going to take place. And if this wasn't bad enough of a setting, it gets worse because the very next clause in that first verse says, and there was a famine in the land. So not only is the whole government a complete mess and chaos, but now there's a food shortage. And that doesn't seem like a big deal for us, but you got to understand this is an agricultural economy. All of life revolved around the farming of this timeline. So now there's a famine. People are hungry. And we see what this causes in the, the end of the verse 1, where it says, A man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn, went to travel away in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The man's name is Elimelech. He's got this wife named Naomi. He's got these two sons. He's an Israelite, and he's leaving the promised land to go off to an enemy nation's land because the idea of staying in Israel is worse off of survival rating than leaving going to a different place. Think of it like this, as American citizens, imagine one day leaving here and to go live off into a, an enemy state because the idea of living with the enemy of someone who wants you dead is a better survival rate than staying where you are now. Like this is a bad situation, right? And I know the idea of leaving because of a food shortage seems weird to us, right? Because if there's a food shortage for us, what do we do? Well, we grumble, we complain, we still go to the grocery store, we just pay the, the higher rates, we maybe buy a cow and we stockpile on toilet paper, right? That's what we do. We've all seen us do it, right? That's how we respond to this. So the idea of leaving your home because there's a food shortage seems kind of weird to us. But I think on a deeper level, there are aspects of this that we can relate to. Like the feeling of, hey, you're leaving town and you're moving away to live somewhere else because of a different job you're taking. And that feeling that you get of like, I don't know what I'm walking into. I'm not going to be known by anybody. Is this going to be my community? Am I going to find a place where I can belong? I think that's something that we can all relate to. Especially if you've ever been to a high school, right? You, you have that feeling of, do I belong here? Do I have uh, my posse, my crew, my, my sense of community, right? If you've ever been to high school, you should be able to relate to how this family is probably feeling, where they've left everything behind. Well, unfortunately, tragedy strikes this family. Because we're told in the third verse of chapter 1 that Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. Now, we don't know why Elimelech dies. The text doesn't tell us. It could have been a tragic accident. It could have been a disease. It could have been he had too much salt in his life that he was eating. You know, it could have been dying from a feeling of failure. Here he is as the breadwinner, and he's having to move his family to an enemy state. I imagine as a man, he would feel like a failure. And maybe that's what kills him. It's just that brokenheartedness. And so Naomi is now a widow. And she's got two sons, and they marry two Moabite women, not Israelite women, but the enemy, right? So they marry the enemy, and the women who are the daughters-in-laws are Orpah and Ruth. Now, what happens from this is shortly after this, Naomi's sons die. So first her husband dies, then her sons get married, and then they die. So now she's left with these 
Two daughters-in-law who are of a different uh, people group than her, a people group that have made it abundantly clear that they're the enemy of her own people, right? And she's dealing with this traumatic pain. Like, try to picture in your mind how she must be feeling. She's left everything she's ever known behind, moved to a different place, and in that time frame that she's been there, she's watched every little bit of security and hope in her life crumble and fall apart. Where her husband dies, and then her sons die, she's brokenhearted over this. And so she decides, I got nothing left here. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem because she's got nothing left in her life. Now, her daughters-in-law, Orpah and and Ruth, are are very good where they're like, hey, we'll go with you. We're family. We're going to do this together. But she doesn't want anything of it. In fact, she tells them in verse 11, she says, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. In that final sentence, we can see where she's at. She's at a spot where she's looking at all the bitterness and brokenness and tragedy and loss that she's experienced. And she blames God. She thinks God has treated her unfairly. That God is punishing her for something. That God is targeting her. And she doesn't know why. Have you ever felt that way? Wondered if God was treating you unfairly? If God was being mean to you and you don't know why? Naomi is so broken over this moment. And she does what all people do when they're in misery and grief and pain. They want to be alone. They push people away. And she comes up with a logical argument. She gives it and Orpah agrees. Orpah's like, yes, this doesn't make sense for me to leave everything I know to go with you with no prospects of my life getting any better. The logical thing would be stay back and I can start over and have a new life. So Orpah leaves. It's the logical thing. But Ruth is different. Ruth sits there and sees her mother-in-law experiencing such tragedy and depression and grief. And Ruth responds differently because she sees how Naomi feels. And she tells Naomi in verse 16, she says, do not urge me to leave you or turn from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May Yahweh do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. See, Ruth won't leave. Logic would say that it would be sensible for her to leave. We would not blame her if she left. But she decides logic is not more important than the sake of the relationship. Because relationship requires a cost of sacrifice. It requires sometimes that we leave logic aside for the sake of what's better for the relationship. And that's where Ruth's at. She's making this undying commitment to Naomi. She's like, Naomi, I see you're in pain and I'm going to go through this pain with you. All the valleys and the hills that you're experiencing, you will not be alone. I'm going with you in this. And what's sad is how Naomi responds. See, Naomi 
Here's Ruth give this pledge of commitment, this pledge of loyalty, this pledge of love. And Naomi shrugs her shoulders and says, whatever. And then they go back into Bethlehem. And when she finds the people, you can imagine Naomi that she grew up with and she's returning, they're all excited to see her. Here's how Naomi talks to them. She says in verse 20, she says, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, which was the word for bitter. She's like, don't call me Naomi, call me a bitter lady. Why? For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when Naomi has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? See, in her grief, Naomi thinks she's got nothing in her life. So imagine being Ruth. And you're standing there and you've just committed undying loyalty to your mother-in-law. Saying, I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to help take care of you. And Naomi goes around telling people, I've got nothing of value in my life. As many of you I know take care of your own elderly parents. Imagine being in this situation where you've opened up your homes for your parents to move in. You've sacrificed. You, you sacrifice financially. Your family has sacrificed their own stress. You've gone beyond your limits, it feels like, to take care of someone else. And then imagine them in public telling other people, I have nothing. I have nothing of value in my life. I have no future, no hope. My life is over. See, some of you don't have to imagine that, I know. Because some of you are there right now. And it breaks my heart. Because I know you're sacrificing so much. You are trying to be Ruth to a Naomi out there. And it is difficult, I know. Just as I know, in our own bitterness and pain, we can just be like Naomi as well, of pushing people away, of ignoring and being blind to how others are sacrificing and showing great love toward us. This is what pain and grief and sorrow can do. And so here's Ruth, probably hurt by this, but she's committed. And so the family settles in Bethlehem, and we find that Naomi kind of goes into a depression. She kind of locks herself at home. She doesn't leave home. So it leaves it up to Ruth to go out every single day to find food, to find support for them. And so we find that Ruth goes and, and there's this tradition in ancient Jewish society that if you're a farmer, you would not harvest on the edges of your property. You would leave that for the homeless to come in, to graze off of it. And so that's what Ruth starts to do. She's identified now as this homeless person who's trying to take care of her mother-in-law, who's in a depression, who's dealing with tragedy, who thinks her life is over. This is where Ruth's at. But something happens in this moment. As she's going out, maybe days and weeks and months, maybe even years of this, there's a moment where she comes upon a certain place in chapter 2, where she happened to come to the, the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now, Boaz, we are told right off of the bat, is a man of noble character, a man who is a pillar in his community. He's well-respected, and we can see that in, in how he greets his followers. In verse 4, it says that he said to the reapers, his workers, he says, Yahweh be with you. And they responded, Yahweh bless you. It's showing us that this is a man that we could respect. This is a man that we could admire. This is a good man in the community. And he finds Ruth on the edge of his property as a homeless woman. 
She's clearly not an Israelite. And he starts asking about her. And his workers start telling him, oh, that's, that's Ruth. She's that foreigner who's come all this way here to take care of Naomi. And it catches Ruth's, or Boaz's attention because he sees what's going on. And, and we're told that he, he approaches her in verse 8. And he says, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Now he's kind of saying, I have these other servants. Stay close to them. Be friends with them. He's given her a sense of community, a sense of a sisterhood, right? He goes on, he says, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? He's like, hey, I've even told my men, they've got to protect you. So here he is, he's wanting to provide her a sense of community and friendship. He's wanting to protect her. It goes on, he says, and when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. He's also wanting to provide for her. This is a good dude, right? He, he wants to be a provider. He wants to be a protector. He wants this woman, this foreign woman who he has no right to, no obligation to, he wants to help provide her a sense of family a sense of community, friends. And she's stunned by this. And she asks, why is this happening? And he tells her why he wants to, to protect her and give her this blessing. It's in verse 11. And he says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. See, Boaz sees the sacrifice and commitment that Ruth has for Naomi. And it tells us that the sacrifices we make for those who are hurting does not go unseen. And that should be great encouragement for us. If you feel like you're dealing with the Naomi, your efforts and your sacrifices do not go unseen. More importantly, there is a God who sees you, who is proud of your sacrifice for the ways that you are adamantly trying to love God and love people in that difficult space. There is a God who sees you. And there's a church family who sees you as well. While we might not always be able to be physically there with you, it should be comforting, I hope, for you to know that there are people in this family, in this room, and online who love you, who see what you're going through, who are there for you if you need them. See, that's what we're seeing in this moment, is that God sees the sacrifices we make for those who are struggling, for those who are hurting. And we want to pr propose that, we want to say that as us as a church. That's who we want to be. That's why we got that prayer box right outside. That way, every time we have an elders meeting, we could be praying for you so we know what's going on, so we could be there for you. That's why we have that bluff app where it has a prayer wall. That's why we do email chains of saying, hey, this is what's going on with our bluff family. Be in prayer about this because we're a family and we see the burdens that each one of us is carrying. And we want you to know that you are not alone. You're not alone in this struggle. When you feel like, hey, I'm trying to, to be like Jesus, take care of someone, you're not alone. What goes on from this story is that Ruth goes back to Naomi. She's got like a duffel bag full of food and stuff like that. And, and Naomi's shocked and, and Ruth tells her all that happened. And here's how Naomi responds in verse 20 of chapter 2. She says, may he be blessed by Yahweh whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. She's excited. She's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Let him be blessed. God bless him. He's a wonderful human being, right? And Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, maybe your translation says kinsman redeemers. And what is that, right? That's not a term or a title we use today. Basically, in ancient Israel, 
they had laws given by God that said if someone was to die, then the rest of the family would supposed to be coming in to step in to help take care of that individual, to, to be there for them. It's a law that tells us that God cares for the widows and single parents, that God has an interest in wanting his people to come alongside these individuals and help take care of them, help support them. It's a beautiful law in God's word. And so she's excited. Naomi's ecstatic because she's like, this is a man who by all legal rights is that man who should be taking care of us. And here he is. He wants to take care of us. And this starts to change Naomi. You know, before Naomi's only ever been bitter. She wants people to call her a bitter lady. All she can ever see is her tragedy and pain. She can't see a brighter future ahead for her. Like all people who are suffering in tragedy and grief and sorrow, they think this is all that there is in life. That's where Naomi has been. But through the constant loyalty and commitment that Ruth has made, maybe years of it, we start to see a shift in Naomi and her character. And we see that in verse uh, 1 of chapter 3, which says, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? She, in this moment, is wanting to take care of Ruth in return. Her eyes are finally starting to see that Ruth has sacrificed so much, and she wants to take care of Ruth. And in fact, her idea is, I'm going to try to hook you up with this guy. I'm going to try to to get you together to have you marry this man. So she instructs uh, Ruth to get Boaz's attention, and we find that one night, Ruth goes to meet Boaz, and she proposes marriage. Which is, I know, it it seems even odd today, but back then it was even more a little bit taboo. But Ruth actually in the story proposes marriage to to Boaz. And we're told that Boaz responds in verse 10. It says, May you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. This is a sweet romantic moment where Boaz is saying yes to the marriage. And if this was a romantic comedy, we would think that this would be the end of the movie. And we're like, oh, this is great, right? But like every romantic comedy, there's always a twist, right? Some crisis that comes up that needs to be solved. Well, it happens in the very next verse, verse 12, where Boaz says, And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. It means there's someone who has a greater standing, legal standing to take care of you. So let me go check with him. Let me clear the scales so that I can marry you, so that we can be a family, so that we can take care of you. And so Boaz goes and does that. and He gets everything squared away. And then he goes and he marries Ruth. And we're told in chapter 4, verse 13, where it says, So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and Yahweh gave her conception and she bore a son. The book of Ruth ends with the complete reversal and transformation of how the story began. Where in the beginning, there was nothing but death and tragedy and sorrow. By the time we come to the end of the book, we find new life is coming forward. It's so much so that people come to Naomi. Not to Ruth, but they come to Naomi. And here's what they tell Naomi. Verse 14. They said, Blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Remember how in the beginning, Naomi was just caught up in this grief and bitterness. And she was even telling people, I have nothing of value in my life while Ruth stood right next to her. Now, everyone knows what Ruth has done. 
and they are praising her. And they're like, Ruth is better to you than, than having a whole bunch of kids, right? Because what Ruth has done has been seen. It's been appreciated in time. That sacrifice she made was not ignored. And in this story, we see how God was working behind the scenes, mending things, fixing things, restoring things. And it shows us that God oftentimes works in the mundane details of our lives. Those little moments that we think are insignificant, God is always at work. Because why? We worship a God who is all-knowing, always present, and all-powerful. Which means he can take even our grief and sorrow, and even the moments of our lives where we're like, I don't know what today was about. Today wasn't anything special. It was insignificant, right? God can even take those moments as part of his larger purpose of moving things forward. Because remember, God's larger purpose is to fix the world. It's to restore things. And here he is, he's working in the tiny little details of a single family. It's a beautiful, beautiful showing. And if we look carefully of how how does God really bring his restoration into the world? How does he move in this mundane little details? How does he fix things? It shows us something about how God works. It's that God oftentimes brings his restoration to the world through relationships. God's restoration often comes into the world and into our lives through relationships. You see, it was the relationship that Ruth and Naomi had that allowed God to work in Naomi's heart, to change her story. And when Boaz came along, it was an addition to that. Here's this God who works in our relationships. And this story, it might seem insignificant. We might be like, oh, that's great and all, but how does this play into the overall story? It's because of the son that was eventually born from Ruth and Boaz. See, we're told at the end of the, the book of Ruth, this little passage, where it says they named him the son Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And so the book ends with this genealogy pointing ahead that there's this guy coming ahead. His name's David. He's Israel's greatest Old Testament king. And we're going to touch on him in a couple of weeks, right? But he is this promised guy who's coming ahead. And it shows us that this little family, God was using to move towards a greater restoration that was coming ahead. And this is a beautiful testimony of how God is is active in our lives. And this story overall should be encouragement to us in one of two categories. Because we're either a Naomi or we're a Ruth and a Boaz. And if you're a Naomi, I, I understand that you might be experiencing some tragedy, some sorrow, and some pain in your life. And that grief can feel like you're drowning in it. It could feel like you're just struggling to come up for air. And I find that we get really good at hiding when we're a Naomi. With plenty of social media filters and a busy schedule, we can convince other people that we're doing just fine. And then we can come to church, and then we can smile, we can greet hands, we can say the things that we say every week. Yeah, I'm doing fine. How are you? Oh, you're doing fine? That's great. That's awesome. I'm going to go to the next person, right? We can easily hide the fact that we're not all right. We can all do this. So please hear me if that's you. Please hear me. You are not alone. You're not alone. There is a hope that is coming in the future. But if you're in Naomi right now, please seek some help. 
Find your own Ruth and Boazes in your life. Find those people that you can get together and be like, hey, I'm not all right. Can I just, can I just vent? Can I just you know, get this off my chest? Can I just ask for you to be in my corner? Find those people in your life. See, us as a church, we say all the time that we are a family. We're a family of imperfect people who are coming together to worship a perfect God. This God we see all throughout the Bible has this heart of community at the center of how this family dynamic works. This is not, hey, let's come to a show, let's hear a message, and let's go home. This is about coming together to be a family. That's why we say all the time we value participating in small groups. That's why you can sign up on a small group by pulling up your phone, get on the Bluff app, or right now at the Hub, there's a sign-up sheet if you want to sign up for a small group. We say this all the time because life is hard. And it's even worse if you try to go at it alone. We worship a God who wants us to be in community. So it's silly when we look at Christians nowadays, and Christians so oftentimes just want to be by themselves. That's not the biblical model Life is hard, and God has given us this family. So we encourage you, sign up for a small group. And I understand maybe, maybe life is a little bit hectic and busy, and you can't fit in. But I'm sure there is someone in your life who could be a Ruth or a Boaz to you. Someone in your life who hasn't given up on you. Someone in your life who sees your tragedy, who sees the grief and the bitterness you're carrying, and if you just open up to them, they would be there for you. Us as a church, we want to be that. I hope you can find someone like that here in this church. But if not, find someone in your life who can be like that. And if you're not a Naomi, then I want to tell you, you have an opportunity to be a Ruth. Because there are plenty of Naomi's out there around us. And maybe there's someone in your life who needs you to be like a Ruth to them. Who needs you to be the kind of person who will stick with them who will see all the mess that the other person is and say, you know what, I see this, I'm going through this with you. I'm going to be there with you. You have the opportunity to be like that. We have the commandment in Scripture to be like that. You open up the Bible, you go to the New Testament, you find in places like Romans chapter 12, and it says this, it says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Are you doing this? Could people say that you're someone who loves with brotherly affection? Could people say you're someone who wants to outdo others in showing honor and being there for someone? Would this describe you? What about this next verse in the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verse 2? It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Does that describe you? Does that describe how you treat other Christians? Let me tell you about this. We are really bad in the world as Christians of doing this. Sometime along the way, Christianity became about a show. It became, let's come to church. Let's just hear a sermon. Let's go home. Let me tell you, these commands do not happen in this setting. God has in mind of you being who you're always meant to be. That happens in relationships with others. I can preach my heart out. You will not be any closer to being who you were meant to be just because you heard an excited sermon from me. You move in the pathway of discipleship when you get with others who want to love God and love people and want to see you love God and love people. That's where discipleship and transformation happens. We can do better at this. We need to do better at this. If there's anything we learn from COVID, this is needed. We need to be like Ruth and Boaz. For someone out there, we have this opportunity 
It doesn't matter if you're in middle school or you have grandkids who are in middle school. All of us have this opportunity to be there for one another because life is hard, which is also why we encourage small groups. See, small groups are not just for the Naomi's out there. They're for the Ruth's and the Boaz's to give you a space where you can develop relationships, where you can be there for other people. And I understand it's difficult. Believe me, no one knows that better than I do. It is difficult for me as a pastor to be in a small group and to be there with others and be like, hey, I'm struggling. It's difficult because I'm always under a spotlight. This is how pastors are. But this is important. So that's why we're part of it. That's why we encourage you guys. This is a gift that God has given us to be together. Don't squander it. And I understand it's difficult. It's difficult to be vulnerable. It's difficult to be transparent. We live our lives with filters. But there's a God who says, love me and love people. And we cannot do that in isolation. We cannot do that if we do not know the people who sit around us. It's easy to come in. But let me ask you, do you know the people who are sitting in the same row as you? Do you know the people who sit in the row in front of you and behind you? Most of us sit in the same place every week. Do you know their names? Do you know their last names? Do you know what's going on in their life? When was the last time you invited someone out to lunch after church or to come over to your house? Church is not about the building. Church is about the people. It's when Naomi's and Ruth's come together because in that context, God brings his restoration into the world. When people who have faith in him are willing to come alongside one another to say, I love God and I love people. Let's do this together. That's the opportunity we have for us. So I want to encourage you to sign up for a small group. Or at the very least, be either seeking to be a Ruth and Boaz or be looking for a Ruth and Boaz. And maybe the easy way you can do that is here in a minute I'm going to pray. And there are going to be men and women in the back of the room. Because if you're in a Naomi state and you need to just vent, you need to just get off your chest what's going on in your life, you need to be like, hey, I need someone who can pray for me. Someone who will remind me that they're in my corner, that they love me, and that there's a God who loves me. If that's you, I want to encourage you to go and talk to someone. We purposely do it in the back of the room because coming up here to the front is awkward. I mean, we've all been in those kind of churches, right? We do it in the back of the room so no one can see you. So you can be open and honest and vulnerable and say, I need help. Will someone pray for me? So in here in a minute, we're going to be back there. And I want to encourage you guys to consider joining a small group, or at the very least, I understand life is busy. We have drawing for dinner. That's an easy way to get to know the people in this church. That's an easy way to go beyond just, hey, how are you doing, waving, but to actually be in each other's life. That's an easy way. I want to encourage you guys to go and sign up for that as well. But for now, let's pray. Father, we see all throughout your, your word that the world will only know of your love if they see it displayed in us. So teach us to do better. Break our hearts where it's cold, where it it seeks isolation, and, and Father, move us to a new place. Father, so oftentimes we're grieving. So oftentimes we're carrying bitterness and sorrow. I understand so well how easy it is to just, to hold this in, to not tell anybody to not seek help. But you've given us this gift of a gospel community. 
You've given us this gift of family where you are in the middle of it. You say in your word, where two or more are gathered together, you are there. And when you are in a place, you are doing something, Father. So bring us to the point where we can open up our hearts and open up our homes, where we can be honest with one another, where we can be seeking to have godly relationships in our lives, that we can be seeking those in our lives who will teach us how to love you and to love like you into this world. Father, I ask that you would bring us from our bitterness and our our pain and sorrow and you bring transformation into our lives and into the relationships. It's easy to look and when we're in pain that you've given people in our lives who, who can bring goodness into the spaces. So Father, open our eyes when we feel sorrow, when we feel pain and bitterness, to see those people and give us the courage to reach out to them. But in the same way, Father, help us to be like Ruth. Help us to be like Boaz. Help us to be able to see the pain that others are carrying and give us the courage to be able to step forward and say, I see what you're going through and I want you to know you do not go through it alone. You are loved. And I want to come alongside you. Make us into that kind of people, Father, as you lead us forward in your word to be a church for those who have given up on church. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thank you.